This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. Did you recognize that bird call? We'll be talking about that particular species of bird in just a moment when we return to Bird Hugger. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello, everyone. Hope you're all doing well and enjoying this beautiful summer. I know 2020 has had more than its share of ups and downs, but I hope you have still been able to enjoy the best the summer has to offer. The other day, my husband went to the nearby CSA farm and brought back a big basket full of fresh-picked blueberries, strawberries, cantaloupe, and honeydew melons. I love how you can literally taste summer in the sweetness of these organic fruits. I mixed all of them together and created a big fruit bowl, and we ate fruit for dinner. I cannot wait until we get our watermelon and sweet corn. This is also the time of year I love walking through our organic vegetable garden. I like pulling a giant beefsteak tomato off the vine and eating it right there in the garden. Sometimes I even bring a salt shaker and sprinkle salt on the tomato before biting down. Don't tell my husband. So anyway, I know I mentioned drought conditions in the last episode, and thankfully we have received some rain since then. But dry conditions do continue in some regions of New England. You can file this next bit of information under yet another reason to kill your lawn. People in Maine are coming outside to find their lawns are turning black. Last week, residents of Maine started contacting the authorities to report their lawns were turning from green to brown to black, and they had no idea why. Horticulturists with the University of Maine Cooperative Extension Service went out to test several of these black lawns and discovered the grass was full of cladosporium, a parasitic fungus that multiplies in extremely high humidity. This opportunistic pathogen hasn't been seen in Maine in over 30 years, according to plant pathologists, yet is being found in every county in the state. The pathologists are saying the perfect growing conditions for cladosporium are extremely dry conditions, followed by high humidity, and the problem is made even worse by homeowners who water their lawns with sprinklers in the early morning and late evenings. Since lawn grasses are a non-native, unnatural, and artificial plant phenomenon created by humans, they are not adapted to drought-like conditions the way native plants are. Once the condition known as black lawn strikes, it produces millions of spores that are spread on the wind and also through the water people use to water their lawns. If you are seeing the slimy black mold, it means your lawn is already dead. As so many people with lawns are fond of saying, better luck next year. So to further our discussion about types of plants, I wanted to add three more categories today. It's important to keep in mind these categories are not exclusive. In fact, they can cross over quite a bit. 
You'll remember that a native is a plant that was growing in your region long before European settlers arrived to the U.S. They have co-evolved with native insects and birds to form a cooperative and beneficial partnership. Today, I wanted to mention introduced non-natives. Introduced non-natives, also referred to as exotics, are plants that are usually from other countries and are introduced into a region for use in home gardens or farms. These non-natives can also be introduced accidentally as roots or seeds in imported soils or can cling to the ballast of ships arriving from other countries. You, of course, have probably heard the stories of immigrants in the 1800s arriving in America with tree seedlings from their country of origin packed away in their luggage. Bringing this seemingly harmless sentimental piece of home to the U.S. has resulted in a widespread of non-native vegetation throughout the country. Introduced non-natives can also be the intentional result of marketing campaigns by growers and garden centers looking to make money by pushing fancy ornamental exotics onto customers. We've all fallen prey to the full-color seed and plant catalogs that arrive in the mail in the dead of winter when we are desperate to get back out into our gardens. The $60 billion a year horticultural industry knows when it has a captive audience. In addition, insects that hitchhike on foreign plants and trees or on wooden shipping pallets have decimated some of our most beloved tree species. This includes the elm tree, which was infected by the fungus-carrying Asian bark beetle. Hemlocks, which have been greatly affected by the woolly adelgid, an aphid-like insect from Asia, and also ash trees, which are presently battling the emerald ash borer, another hitchhiker from Asia. So not only do exotics take up space needed by natives, they also contribute to the spread of harmful infestations. The second category is naturalized non-natives. These are non-natives that have so widely spread into natural areas that many people believe they actually are native. One example of a naturalized non-native is Queen Anne's lace, which is native to Europe and Asia. This plant was brought to North America by colonists as a medicinal plant. While some wildlife, like insects and birds, may have partially adapted to the presence of these naturalized non-natives by eating their seeds or collecting their pollen, they are certainly no match for the benefits of natives. However, Queen Anne's lace is a good example of a naturalized non-native that has been around for centuries and has started to become beneficial. It is now listed as a host plant for the eastern black swallowtail. The third category is the invasive non-native. Invasive non-natives are very aggressive and take advantage of any empty space to flourish and grow. Once established, they are very difficult to eradicate. These include plants like the Japanese knotweed and purple loosestrife. They force natives out of an area and form monocultures that do not benefit wildlife. I should say here, I'm not a purist. I believe if a plant is benefiting the ecosystem in some way, then you should think very carefully before removing it. And if you do, by all means, replace it with a native that offers the same benefits, be it nectar, pollen, seeds, insects, or shelter. In other words, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. As a native gardener, you have to assess how much time and energy you're willing to put into ridding your yard of non-natives. Removing a non-native that has some value, but not replacing it with a native, will actually set you back in your attempt to help the birds.
It's important to keep in mind that non-native plant species can reduce biodiversity and compete with native plants for limited resources, like water, sun, and minerals, and can cause the extinction of native plants by disrupting their habitat and driving them out of their growing range. The truth is, birds need native plants to survive. Thousands of years of evolution have created a specialized relationship between trees, plants, and insects. And when these elements are synchronized, the birds are the benefactors. When the relationship is disrupted, the birds suffer the consequences. And now, let's talk about the one-third for the birds movement and how you can increase wildlife habitat in your backyard. Habitat for wildlife is shrinking at an alarming rate in the United States. As the human population steadily increases, more and more pristine wildland is being bulldozed and paved over to create houses, condos, and shopping malls. With every forest, field, and wetland that is destroyed, wildlife is being pushed further and further into crowded urban areas to compete for scarce food offerings, often with fatal consequences, according to wildlife organizations like the National Audubon Society. But there is a way to minimize some of the habitat destruction. Wildlife experts have launched an initiative called One Third for the Birds. This program is asking Americans to devote one third of their backyard to help wildlife thrive. By reducing the percentage of yard that is mowed, pruned, dug up, and sprayed with pesticides, Americans can increase habitat that birds and other wild creatures depend upon for their survival. There are several ways to achieve one-third for the birds on your property. Allow the very back of your yard to go wild. Create a quiet, overgrown spot where birds can hide from predators and safely raise their young without becoming frightened by loud noises from lawnmowers, leaf blowers, and the presence of humans, dogs, and cats. Leave tree branches and leaves in this area to create hiding places. Plant native trees, shrubs, and perennials so that birds have adequate food like insects, seeds, and berries. Provide a water source like a bird bath or create your wild space near an existing pond, stream, or seasonal swale. Those of us who love gardening can spend a lot of time staring wide-eyed at the colorful seed and flower catalogs that start pouring in through the mail slot every winter. This winter, start looking in those catalogs for the native varieties. There are also some wonderful websites with information about natives for your region, including plantnative.org, and also you can go to the National Wildlife Federation's website, nwf.org, for their native plant finder. Not sure what you want for your birthday? Ask for the resourceful book, The Green Garden, A New England Guide to Planting and Maintaining the Eco-Friendly Habitat Garden by Ellen Sousa. Or request Douglas W. Tallamy's masterpieces, either Bringing Nature Home or Nature's Best Hope. You can create a wildlife corridor. This is achieved by linking the wild part of your yard with the neighbors, an ideal way to maximize habitat. It doesn't matter if there is a fence or wall separating your properties. The wildlife will use this long stretch of habitat to safely migrate, hunt for food, and raise their young. A wildlife corridor prevents birds and mammals from being hit by cars since they don't have to cross as many roads to find shelter and food. Instead of a sterile lawn that has very little to offer birds and other wild creatures like pollinators, start planting organic clover, borage, and dandelions. Not ready to give up your lawn? Then build gardens around all four sides of the lawn and fill those areas with natives. If your lawn already has a plant border, then widen it by digging several feet into your lawn on all four sides and fill that area with natives. The benefits? Less mowing, raking, fertilizing, and fewer lawn treatments 
and a lot more time to enjoy your yard. You can create a rain garden. A rain garden is nothing more than a mini wetland system. Search your property during a heavy rainstorm to find areas where water is pouring into the street or ponding on the lawn. A rain garden will catch and hold this out-of-control water, allowing it to percolate back down into the water table. An excellent book that explains the easy steps to creating a rain garden is Rain Gardens, Sustainable Landscaping for a Beautiful Yard and a Healthy World by Lynn M. Steiner and Robert W. Dahm. Your rain garden will attract rare butterflies and birds, not to mention you will no longer be losing precious topsoil with every rain event. And please don't forget about your bat friends. Just one bat can grab and eat thousands of mosquitoes each night. Buy a bat house, white pine is best, Cedar bat houses exude oils that can irritate the respiratory systems of bats, especially the pups. Hang it 10 to 20 feet above ground. Be sure the house is clear of obstructions like tree branches for 25 feet around. Eastern or southeastern exposure is best to provide enough warmth. Do not paint or stain your bat house as this can poison the bats. By joining other Americans in the one-third for the birds movement, you will be rebuilding the biodiversity so critical to keeping birds and other wildlife from going extinct. Did you recognize that bird call at the beginning of the show? That's the call of the common grackle. The grackle, or quisculus quiscula, is greatly misunderstood by many people, so today we'll be taking a look at some of the benefits of this noisy but very pretty bird. The grackle has several subspecies, but today we will be focusing mostly on the common grackle, which is a black bird that measures roughly 12 inches long, with a tapered bill, long legs, and a very long tail. It should be noted that while grackles appear black from a distance, the females often sport brownish or brownish-black feathers. The male grackles are the true standouts. Their black feathers have an iridescent sheen that can turn the bird's plumage into captivating hues of green, sapphire, and violet. The call of the grackle is loud and distinctive. It sounds like a rusty hinge on a screen door. Grackles like to travel in flocks for safety and prefer open woodlands and marshes. This species is present year-round in most of New England and the southeastern United States, but their breeding range extends all the way to the Rocky Mountains. One misconception is that the common grackle is a non-native and invasive bird, but in fact the grackle is native to North America. A member of the Octirid family of birds, which includes the meadowlark and the oriole, the grackle has been in North America for centuries. Testing by avian scientists is showing the grackle is a very smart bird, adept at problem solving and adapting to changing environments. These intelligent birds are omnivores and know where to find the food. They have been observed following farmers' plows to eat unearthed insects and will even wade into water to catch minnows. They are also not averse to plucking leeches off the legs of turtles, according to some bird researchers. While grackles will eat berries, seeds, and fruits, their number one favorite food is insects. They are of great benefit to gardeners as they are particularly fond of Japanese beetles, tomato hornworms, and snails. They are also of benefit to farmers due to their predilection for grasshoppers, cutworms, armyworms, and corn borers, all of which can do great damage to crops. Another misconception is that grackles bully other songbirds. The fact is, grackles rarely bother songbirds at feeders, since they prefer to eat food on the ground. However, because of their proclivity for ground feeding, grackles are often the victims of cat attacks, which is one of the main reasons their numbers are in decline. Grackles are fastidious birds and will use marigold petals, which have insect repellent qualities, 
to rid themselves of feather mites and other parasites. They are quirky birds, and it is fun to watch their comical antics. During mating season, the male walks with a jaunty strut, showing off in front of the females. Unfortunately, grackles do suffer the prejudice shown to all birds with black feathers. Sadly, crows, ravens, red-winged blackbirds, starlings, and grackles are seen by some people as evil or demonic. This is the result of centuries of mythology associating crows and ravens with witchcraft, as well as biblical prophecy and films like Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Perhaps someday, we will all be able to appreciate the positive attributes of this smart, sociable, and beneficial bird. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And now on to the email mailbag. A woman from West Springfield, Massachusetts writes, I thought I would recycle my dryer lint by throwing it on the ground outside so the birds can use it to make their nest. Is this a good idea? Actually, while your motives are well-intentioned, it is not a good idea, and here's why. Dryer lint is infused with the chemicals from detergents as well as from sheets of fabric softener. Both can be toxic to adult and baby birds, causing damage to their delicate lungs and air sacs. Also, when lint is dry, it has structure, but when wet due to rain, can become stringy and trap the legs of baby birds, hampering development of the youngster. It is also not a good idea to use dog hair, which can be chemically tainted by flea sprays and shampoos. The same goes for human hair, especially chemically treated hair. Human hair can also entangle the legs of baby birds. The best nesting material is what birds find naturally in your yard, and these include things like pine needles, leaves, mosses and lichens, spider webs, twigs, and mud. And now for the interview segment of our show. I contacted Jane Sorensen. She owns and runs Northeast Pollinator Plants in Fairfax, Vermont. Northeast Pollinator Plants is an online regional provider of native and naturalized perennials. She sells over 70 species. Each has been carefully selected to ensure it is of special value to native bees and bumblebees. She sells her native plants in the state of New York as well as the New England states. Now, we were not able to conduct an in-person interview, but she did send me the answers to my questions via email, and I'd like to read them to you. Jane started Northeast Pollinator Plants in the fall of 2015. As a retired landscape architect, she says she knows what it's like to do careful research in making an ideal plant list, only to find that the right plants simply are not available. Jane has been giving presentations on landscape design for pollinators around the region and teaches a course at the University of Vermont, offering a list of the best plants to provide pollinator foraging and nesting materials for the New England and New York states. Invariably, she says the question from students would be, where can we get those plants? Frustrated by the limited source of native plants available, she decided, well, someone has to do this. So here you have it, the birth of a regional pollinator plant's mail-order nursery. So I asked her, why are native plants so important? 
She says plants have natural defenses to keep insects from eating them, but native insects that have co-evolved with native plants have adapted to be able to digest leaves and or access the pollen and nectar to survive and thrive. So a landscape full of native plants nourishes native insects. She says you may have a few holes in your plants, but we need to learn to celebrate this and know we are feeding the insects. A landscape where there are no insects feeding is a dead landscape, and we have been creating dead landscapes for far too long, she says. Without insects, birds cannot eat. Most birds need the larval stage of insects like caterpillars to feed their young, and most adult birds eat insects too, as well as fruits and seeds, and those would not be available without the insect pollinators, native bees being the most important pollinator group. I asked Jane, do you have any advice for people just starting out? She said the first thing is less lawn. How much of your landscape is currently mowed lawn, and how much of that lawn do you actually need? We love lawn, but it is of little value as habitat for birds and insects, and its maintenance is detrimental to the environment. In general, mowing a lawn for one hour pollutes the air as much as driving a car for 50 miles. So for many, weekly mowing doubles your commuting footprint, and many of us further the environmental insult by drenching our lawns with fertilizers and pesticides. And of course, lawn is very shallow-rooted, so it tends to increase stormwater runoff. Lawn is great for active play, but the rest could become something else, like growing food for people or for wildlife, and native plants are the choice there. So to start off, she says to evaluate your lawnscape and decide on a segment that does not need to be lawn. Then you have some options on what to do with that space. In a larger landscape, there are often areas that are mowed, but were never actually planted. If you simply stop mowing these areas, there are often latent native seeds just waiting for an opportunity to flourish. She has an area by a barn that she said she's mowed for some 20 years. She stopped mowing it, and after three years, she says she now has a monarch heaven full of common milkweed. Great areas to do this is stepping back some 20 feet from a forest or road edge or steeper land that is challenging to mow. If you're concerned what the neighbors will think, put up a pollinator habitat sign. That will help them better understand what you're trying to do. If your project is more than a half acre, mow some paths so you can safely observe the crazy number of pollinators, birds, and other wildlife you will have magically attracted to your landscape without concern for ticks and Lyme disease. After three years, she says you will want to mow or weed whack a third of the area in late spring and continue to maintain a third every year to keep it as meadow unless you would prefer it to grow up into a second growth forest, which certainly has value too. When it comes to a smaller landscapes, she says if you have a smaller landscape of existing lawn or other landscaping that you wish to convert to more native habitat plantings, you may want to take more of a garden approach. Whenever planting perennials or woody plants, it is best to not turn over the soil or as little as possible to avoid bringing unwanted seeds to the surface. Sure, some of these weed seeds could be beneficial, but maybe not what you were planning on having in your garden. You also want to avoid leaving soil bare for long, as invasive plants are quick to establish empty space. If the area is lawn, you can rent a sod cutter or use a spade to remove the lawn and the top one or two inches of soil to get the sod roots. If woody plants, you will need to dig out each plant. If exotic perennials, you can weed whack or mow as low as possible in the spring, then smother with cardboard or black woven landscape material and leave in place for two months. Then you should be ready to plant. Most native perennials do not need a rich soil that has been enhanced with lots of compost or fertilizer. Or you can simply add native plants to your existing landscape. 
she suggests trying for 75% native in your garden. Jane says the Xerces Society, an amazing insect conservation group, recommends we include at least 10 plant species. Ideally, you would want to plant three plants that flower early in the season, three that flower mid-season, and three that flower late in the season, plus one native grass. So here's what she recommends, and this would be for an area with sun to part sun and dry to moist soil. For early flowering plants, she recommends beard tongue, purple cone flower, and blue wild indigo. For mid-season flowering, she recommends Annie's hyssop, wild bergamot, boneset, and blazing star. And then for late flowering plants, she recommends New York ironweed, sneezeweed, and New England aster. The native grass she recommends is little blue stem. She does add that true native plants are weirdly still really hard to find at your local nursery and garden center. And often what is labeled as native is not necessarily native to your region or is a cultivar of a native plant, which may or may not be a great choice, she says. There are many great sources online for exploring native plants for your region or state, she says. For wildflowers that are native perennials, her favorite is the Wildflower Center, which is located in Texas. They have a great website where you can filter for state and specific growing conditions, along with flower color. Go to the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center at wildflower.org. I want to thank Jane Sorensen for answering my interview questions and for giving us some great advice. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. So to continue my personal story, the day finally arrived when it was time to start my volunteer job. As I walked in the door, a veterinarian and several assistants were preparing a newly arrived green sea turtle for surgery. The turtle had the dreaded fibropapillomavirus and had grown massive tumors on its face and eyes. The tumors were blocking the turtle's ability to find food and to eat, and the turtle was severely underweight. Fibropapillomatosis, or FP, is a disease of sea turtles and is characterized by benign tumors that eventually become debilitating to the turtle, affecting its ability to swim and to eat. It's the most wide-ranging disease affecting sea turtles worldwide, but is most severe in green sea turtles. It is caused by a contagious and deadly herpes virus that lies dormant in the turtle's system, but once activated results in the growth of tumors, sometimes the size of grapefruits, all over the turtle's body. This green sea turtle had washed up on a beach north of the Keys and was found sick and starving. The suspected cause of FP is warmer waters and pollution of the ocean. Other problems for sea turtles occur when they swallow plastic bags thrown in the sea, which resemble jellyfish. The plastic can cause serious internal obstructions, resulting in death. Another big problem is boat strikes, as well as entanglement in fishing gear. I walked through the infirmary to the outdoors, where the sea turtles were kept while they healed from their injuries. I had been assigned a trainer and this very kind and experienced young lady explained the responsibilities of my job. I was to lift each turtle out of its tank and place it into a small kiddie pool. Then I was to drain the tank of the dirty water, scrub the tank clean, and then refill it with clean ocean water. My trainer, who was a wildlife rehabilitator, would then give the turtle any needed medications and change any bandages. Then I was to place the turtle back in the tank. 
I stooped over the tank to lift up the first turtle. It was a juvenile loggerhead. I placed my fingers firmly around each side of the turtle's shell and bent my knees for extra traction. But try as I might, I could not lift the turtle more than two or three inches before having to put the animal back down. I tried several times, but it became obvious I did not have the upper body strength to safely lift the turtle out of the tank. And this was one of the smaller turtles. I couldn't even imagine what lifting the larger ones would be like. I looked around to see the younger volunteers lifting the turtles out of the tanks with no problem. My many years as a college professor sitting in front of a classroom had taken its toll and made me soft, and it caused me to lose the strength in my arms and shoulders. I told the trainer I could not lift the turtle. She was very patient and told me not to worry. She did both of our jobs that day, but I could tell this was not an arrangement that could go on indefinitely. I went home that day emotionally crushed. I knew I would not be able to do the job. My husband suggested I try working at the gift shop or doing fundraising for the Turtle Center, but my heart just wasn't in it. I wanted the experience of working hands-on with injured wildlife. And then several days later, a fisherman would approach me with an injured bird wrapped in a towel, and he would ask me to take it to a bird rescue center nearby. It was a drive that would change my life. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.